In our time tonight in 1 Corinthians and chapter 11, just intend to speak upon three words tonight, 1 Corinthians and chapter 11. The three words make up the title of the message, Until He Comes. Now, there are some visiting and maybe some for the first time for communion let just remind you, I don't do a full sermon, a full exposition. Uh, it's a little bit lighter in one sense, but we try to take a little bit more time to focus on communion. Uh, so I will not be preaching, you know, 40 minutes or something like that. But I do want to set some things before us. I don't know, sometimes we get caught up in the world and we lose our expectancy for the Lord's return. And sometimes we, I don't know, begin to wonder if we even believe that He's going to come. But let us be reminded, whatever your position may be tonight, let us be reminded of what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 11, we'll read 23 through 26, but mainly just looking at verse 26. But, for I received from the Lord what also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. And you'll notice the command, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Again, the command, do this as often as you drink, as you drink it in remembrance of me. Then he tells us this in verse 26, so for the church tonight, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In a very real sense, it is a corporate sermon that we preach when we partake of communion. In all of the many differences we may have, discussions and debates we may have, certainly tonight we would agree. Around the table, the substitution of Christ, His body broken, and His blood shed for our redemption, purification, forgiveness of sins, surely we'd agree that our inheritance is based solely upon the work of Christ. We come together in unity, put everything else to the side And we say that we agree that it is Christ who has made us a part of this family. And our text tells us in verse 26 that when we observe communion, that we are making a proclamation here amongst ourselves. We're reminding ourselves as we proclaim together His body broken and His blood shed. Now, if you go to the beginning of your Bible, so think about this phrase, until He comes... Human nature has not changed very much since the book of Genesis or since creation. And it's just very difficult for any amount of time to go by. If something doesn't happen quickly, we start disbelieving that it's going to happen. Especially in our generation of instant internet, microwaves. If it can't be done in 30 seconds, I'm not believing it's going to happen. 
Well, the nature of man, even without microwaves and internet, wasn't much different. You look at Genesis 6, and you're reminded of this type of truth. In verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive. They took their wives, any they chose. Then the Lord said, so here's the declaration, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. You've got 120 years to respond. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, and when the sons of God came to the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw, what did he see? He saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we have a corrupt world. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. And there's a distinction and an identification of a separate group. But there's Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The majority is wrong, the minority is right. Noah is a preacher of righteousness. Genesis tells us this. Peter tells us this. He preaches. Noah's righteous. He's blameless. That's what verse 9 tells us. He walks with God. Here's a man that's faithful, living out his faith, preaching a right message to a world that's not believing it. We can resound the drum it's going to rain, it's going to rain, it's going to rain. It's going to flood, it's going to flood, it's going to flood. If you're not right with God, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to be destroyed, you're going to be destroyed. Five years goes by. It ain't happening. This guy's a quack. He's a religious nut. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I would say after five years, that begins to be the position of the world. What after 20 years? What after 50 years? What after 75 years? Noah, you've lost your mind. You've been saying this for 75 years and everything goes on like it's always gone on. Look, you don't know nothing about what you're saying. Those are just the words and the thoughts that I can hear humanity screaming because they're the same words I hear them screaming today. And so that's going on in the entirety of his ministry. And by the way, just note to self, you preach 120 years, your church never grows, you never have a convert, and nobody ever comes. But he just keeps preaching, he keeps obeying from this morning's service, mind your own business, i got to give an account for the ministry God's called me to. i got to build a boat, and i got to preach a message. This is Noah. Then you look... At verse 22 of Genesis 6, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. 
What's a good word? You want that to be spoke over you. Here's this brother or sister. They did all God commanded them. And then after this, he loads the boat. The boat's built. Again, you see it in chapter 7, verse 5. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Well, then comes the rain. Comes the storm. All the animals are in the boat. Noah and his family's in the boat. You see them standing there, in a sense, looking out the door of the ark. And all the world laughing at this boat, but now it's starting to rain. And somehow, by the divine providence and the omniscience of God, the door is shut by God. Noah doesn't shut the door. You look in Genesis 7, you look in verse 16, and the Lord shut him in. God in control of the door. And when God shuts the door, all opportunities for mercy and grace are over. No more repentance, no more change. The rain now falls. All of you that have rejected, it's over. It's too late. Everything that's been preached was true, and now you're going to experience the consequences of unbelief. In verse 22 of chapter 7, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of, God, breath of life died. The waters, the last verse there in chapter 7, the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Similar situation, truth is preached, pastors stand in pulpits, Sunday school teachers in their Sunday school rooms, the occasion comes, the Lord is going to return. Sadly, I think of Genesis, and it's in contrast to a pagan world of unbelievers, and I see that in the text. What alarms me more now in my day is it's many people within the church that have stopped believing that the Lord's going to return. And all I mean by that is if, if you ask, if I ask you, surely you're going to respond and say, well, yeah, I believe the Lord's going to return. That's the easy answer. But what we say we believe has little to no effect on many confessing Christians. Oh, I believe he's going to return, but I'm going to live like he's not. <clears throat> now, this is not difficult, this next section. It's just simply finding verses in the Bible, and I'm just reading the verses to you. So nothing very creative here. I'm just giving you some simple verses you can read for yourself. So if you want to write down the reference and read them, that's fine. If you just want to listen, that's fine. But just understand that as you listen, I'm not adding commentary. I'm just telling you some verses of the Bible in regards to the coming of the Lord. And so I take these things to be absolute truth, and they're binding upon me that I must believe them because God said. In John 14.3, Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, this is what he says, I will come again. Now, we believe Jesus is true. We believe he never sinned in word, thought, or deed. Everything he says comes to be true. Every prophecy ever made is fulfilled. And he says, I will come again again. Acts 1.11, when he ascends to heaven, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? 
This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he's going to come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's going to happen. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Don't do it before he comes. What's going to happen when he comes? He's going to bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. He will disclose the purposes of the heart. Each one will receive his commendation from God. Vindication's coming. Everything's going to be made right. Don't prejudge this deal. Wait until the final word is given. 1 Corinthians 15, 23, each in his order. Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to him, they'll be resurrected as well. 1 Thessalonians 4 says much. Verse 16, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. It's going to happen. He's been saying, look, I know it's been said. It's been written. I'm just reading the newspaper in a sense. I'm telling you, this is the headline by God. He's going to come. 2 Thessalonians 1.10. When he comes... Not if he comes, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Can you wait for that day when he comes? He's going to be glorified in us. You remember Dr. Yule's message? So like, we're just going to marvel. At the beauty, at the holiness, at the purity, at the loveliness, at, at the everything there is. We're just going to marvel at the Savior. A day's coming. Hebrews 9, verse 27, 28. It's appointed once for man to die. After that, there's going to be a judgment. No doubt about it. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time. And not to deal with sin, but he's going to save somebody. Who's he going to save? Those who are eagerly waiting for him. Is that you tonight? You're that person saying, I just can't wait until he comes. I've had it to hear with this world. I just, please come now. Is that your heart? Is that your motive? That's, is that what makes you tick? Is that one day it might be the day that finally I get to behold him face to face. 2 Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come. And come like a thief. Heavens are going to pass away with a roar. Heavenly bodies are going to be burned up and dissolved and in the earth and the works therein are, that are done. They're all going to be exposed. That day is going to come. Quickly, without warning, when you least expect it, as they say, expect it. 1 John 2.28, now little children, what are we going to do? Little children, what are we going to do? Abide in Him. What do you want to abide in him? So that when he appears, 
When, we, when he appears, what? When he appears, we might have confidence. That's my Savior. That's my Lord. That's the one I'm in relationship with. We would have confidence and we wouldn't shrink back in shame at his coming. You imagine the scene of how many people in this world right now, if he came tonight, would shrink back ashamed at the way they've lived in regards to the person of Christ? Because everything's going to be exposed, and there they're going to stand going, I refuse to believe, I refuse to worship, I refuse to take of communion, I refuse all of these things, and then that day they're going to see him, they're going to be ashamed that they put hobbies and sports and materialism and money and all these things before the living Savior and shame is going to cover them. Oh, may it not be us. May we have confidence that we've lived our lives in honor unto the Lord Jesus. Revelation says much. Revelation 1-7, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye is going to see him, even those who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth will well on account of him. Even so, amen. Revelation 20, verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small. I saw them standing before the throne and these books were opened. And another book was opened. This is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And then Revelation twenty two twenty. He who testifies to these things, the Apostle John, quote, he says of the Lord Jesus, Surely, surely, truly, I am coming Soon, soon. He'd been saying that forever, but then it started to rain. Been saying that forever, and then the clouds are going to break. The sun's going to flee backwards, and the glory of Christ is going to consume the earth. Surely, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I'll never ever, I don't know who the lady was, but I'll never ever forget the conversation. She says, blah, 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 something, something. And I said, yes, unless the Lord comes. And she says, I hope it's not today. I have so much to do. Ma'am, if the Lord comes back today, whatever it is you have to do will not be important any longer. But I think Christians are that way. I hope he don't come back this week because I've got a lot of things to do. It's just so many things I've got at work and home and family. And if he came back this week, I wouldn't get none of that done. If that's your position, you really misunderstand this relationship with Christ and being glorified and being in heaven for all of eternity. Well, there's plenty more. That's just a little bit. But the problem in regards to the coming, second coming of Christ is not vagueness about what the Scriptures say. It's not a scripture problem like, I can't figure out if he's supposed to come back or not. It's not that. The truth of his coming is so very clear, it ought to encourage us, it ought to give us joy, it ought to give us a cause to lift up our eyes in expectancy. It, it, let me put it this way, if, maybe like a Pilgrim's Progress setting, but if you're in jail, you're in prison, and they, 
it's a terrible condition, and everything there says, look, you're just going to starve to death and die, but if you have a guaranteed message that says one day somebody's going to come and let you out, you'll live longer because you have hope. You have expectancy. One day, he said they're going to bring a key, and they're going to open this door. I can hang on for one more day because they might bring the key for tomorrow. So with the expectancy of coming, there is hope. It's for Christianity. I don't know if you can relate. Everybody's in a different world, different life, doing different things. But look, there's days I'm like, I'm done. I'm sick of it all. I can't put one foot in front of the other. I'm done with all of these things. Nope. I have hope. One day, he's going to come. And it's all going to be all right. I can press on one more day. As I said about Puritans, it made me think of it. May we be like the Song of Solomon one more time. Who refers to the Song of Solomon so much? But Song of Solomon, I love this book. So here's what people ask. Here's what they ask. You have to understand this book really to get this, but I hope you'll catch the gist of it. Here's what the world says to us as we talk about the coming of Christ. What is your beloved more than the other beloved? What's what's the deal with you and Jesus compared to all these others? Oh, you most beautiful among women. What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? What, what do you do what you do and say what you say? What's so important about this Jesus you're talking about? What do you, what do you talk about his coming, his return? What do you express love and devotion for somebody you can't even see? You can't touch or hold. How can you have, you're just worshiping in a ghost or a fancy tale in your head. You're just dreaming. You've lost your ever-loving mind. Pause. Let me answer the question about why he's my beloved and he's more important than your beloved. And this is what the text says. My beloved is radiant and he is ruddy. He's distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of waters, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. That's the way we talk when we're in love with Christ. You say, I don't understand poetic language like that. I don't know what to tell you, but if you ever fall in love, you'll understand things like this. Just lose your mind in trying to describe how lovely someone is. This is what it is. I think about Christ coming. I wanted to say, man, I just want to give that type of description. I don't know how else to put it in English words, how beautiful Christ is, how wonderful he is. It's like there's not enough English vocabulary to make this happen. I'm just head over heels in love with Christ. I just can't wait for the wedding day that the groom comes and takes me as his bride and brings me together and takes us behind the doors of the gate and we never return, but we're always together expectancy the church has lost it 
We don't expect nothing to happen. We don't expect people to get saved. We don't expect the Lord to come. We have no sense of life. We have more expectancy for worldly things than we do for the things of God. You don't believe that? And watch how people act when football season starts. Spend hundreds of dollars to sit in the parking lot and cook a hamburger because they expect their team to win. It's a sad testimony we worship sports more than we do Christ. All right, that was expectancy. I assure you, everything else is much shorter. Expression. From my text in 1 Corinthians 11, expression. We proclaim his death until he comes. Cotton gello to announce, to declare, to preach, present active indicative. It's an ongoing reality of what we do. We make him known in the public sphere. We make him known with broad dissemination. We proclaim him, we announce him to the world at large, and we announce him here amongst ourselves in the local church. It's an ongoing proclamation in the church. There's an ongoing proclamation by the church. It's an ongoing proclamation for the glory of God and for the conversion of the lost. In communion, we proclaim the Lord's death by remembrance, by physical objects upon the table, and through the Word of God with these reminders that are given. In everyday life, we proclaim the Lord's return by verbal speech in an English language, by conduct and about the way we serve one another. In our families, we proclaim the Lord's return by reading our Bibles with our wife and children. We proclaim the Lord's coming by prayer with our families, example in our families, and just by basic, simple communication with our children, with our spouse, whatever our makeup of is, our home, we communicate these truths to our families in order that the expectancy can stay on a high note. Why do we do so? We proclaim until He comes because we love Him. We proclaim until He comes because people must be made aware that He's coming. And we proclaim until He comes, quite frankly, because He commanded us to. Lastly, so we have expectation. We have an expression of what we expect. And we have an experience, testimony, expectation, and expression have a direct impact on our experience. Example, when I have an expectancy for my team or my sports figure to win something, then I have a way of expressing what I expect. My team's going to win. They're going to win by this many points. I expect it, so I express it to other people. My expectancy and my expression prepares me for my experience that I'm going to have because of what I expect and what I express. So for the Christian, we expect the Lord to turn. We express our hope that He's going to return. And then it makes up our experience by how we live. I expect him to come. I'm expressing that he's coming. And those two realities make up what I experience on a day-to-day basis. 
my decisions, my life, everything about, why do you do this? Why do you do that? Because he's coming. Because he's coming. And this, these things have an effect on what I experience. The opposite holds true as well. The person who has no expectation of the Lord's return expresses his unbelief by living for the horizontal. And his experience is made up of perishable agendas. Now, Cody preached this message at Balsora this morning. I'm just going to read the text. But in light of those things, this text now fits, and it will make sense to you. It's Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And it says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us for something, training us to renounce ungodliness, training us to renounce worldly passions, training us to live self-controlled lives, upright, godly lives, in the now age. Because of the expectation, because of the expression, this is how I'm going to live now, in this age that I have, these things affect me. This is a great absence in church life. Preacher preaches, but it has no application in present everyday life. What's being said here tonight or in this message ought to have some level of effect upon you now. How am I going to live from this point forward because of the reality of this truth? Since Jesus may come tomorrow, how am I going to live today? Since he may come at midnight tonight, how am I going to finish out the course of my day? It matters. It matters what I do or don't do. It matters all week long how I respond to these truths. A belief in the return of Jesus that has no present application to everyday life is like the man who said he believed the hurricane was going to come to his house and did nothing to prepare for its arrival. Ah, hymn book. Page 664, God moves in. I'm not going to sing, I promise you. I'll read this last line. But God moves in a mysterious way. We're talking about his coming until he comes, believing that, having an effect upon your life. I don't think William Cooper wrote it for this purpose, but I'm just using the line because it applies in some way. Blind unbelief is sure to err. To scan his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter. He'll make it plain. He's made it plain. He's interpreted it. Our responsibility is to believe it. And I close with where we began. We were in Genesis. I close in Matthew, which talks about Genesis. In Matthew chapter 24, it says in verse 36 through 39, Matthew 24, 36 through 39, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days... Before the flood, 
They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day, notice, until the day, until he comes, until the day when Noah entered the ark. Then the thing they didn't believe happened. And so it's the same for us in this day. The the expectancy, the expression, and the experience, I pray that that would have an effect upon you. As we prepare ourselves for communion tonight...